Heavy Cardboard, Episode 42, Life, the Universe, and Toi? Coming to you from Arthur Dent's house in the West Country. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. I am Tony. And I'm Amanda. Woohoo! <laughs> Amanda, why don't you tell them how to get in contact with us? All right. So, just about anything, any place that you want to go to that has heavy cardboard available, we have it. You can go to our website, heavycardboard.com. Send us emails. We love hearing from you guys. Contact at heavycardboard.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Heavy Cardboard. Our BGG Guild number is 2044. Come join the conversation. We've got lots of good stuff going on in there. Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. It's been a couple of great weeks for reviews over on iTunes. Thank you to everybody that has left us ratings, and a special thank you to those that took the time to leave us reviews since the last episode. Those are Crow, Coder Dave, John Tasmo, Dan Hopkinson, Jeremy Carmichael, and Graylum02. Thank you to you guys in particular for leaving the reviews, but thanks to everybody who's taken the time to rate us and review us on iTunes. Keep it up, please. So, you guys have heard that we have a new voice on the show. It's not a guest. This is a new bona fide host to the show, Amanda. Now, yes, she is my wife, but I'm really hoping that you all think of her simply as a host who happens to be Edward's wife. So, our goal is just to do exactly that. So why don't we let her introduce herself? Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Amanda. I've been on the show a couple of times, but not anywhere near in this capacity. Um, you've definitely heard Edward talk about me before. so Mostly uh, positive. Mostly, yeah. So uh, I th- I'm 35 years old. I am from Texas, and that accent will come out occasionally. So a little bit about my gaming background. When I was very little, I was visiting my grandparents' house and did not want to go home for whatever reason. So in order to get me to go home, my grandfather bribed me with going to Albertsons and buying a game. And that became a tradition, (laughs) and I soon owned every game that Albertsons carried. We're talking. I didn't know that Albertsons had that many games. Well, it's like Hi-Ho Cheerio and Shoots and Ladders and all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That became a tradition, and soon I owned every single game that Albertsons carried. But um, Edward and I started playing serious games in 2012 and just fell in love with it. Our best friends now have been brought brought to us from this hobby, and we really, it's really, really great. So, um... Another thing about me is that I'm very anal about logging all the games I play through that awesome app with BG Stats, even down to like scores, who I played it with, everything. And um, those do sync up with my profile on BGG. I'm Amanda U on there. So you can always look me up and see what I've been playing lately and see if I've been winning. I also love to take photos of the games and post them up on Instagram. 
I am AmandaU825 on there. I also do post under the Heavy Cardboard login. So give me a follow if you like board game picks and pictures of the best Greyhound on the planet. His name is Asher. Um, I also struggle with severe anxiety, which is mostly controlled with medication, but I may also sometimes share what it's like to game not only with anxiety, but also with the migraines that I suffer from. I have them chronically, but I'm in good hands, and we'll get it figured out eventually. So, I hope so. Yeah, me too. So that's me. Welcome aboard, lady. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome. No pressure. Yeah, none at all. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Well, you know, the only thing uh, that's constant in the world is change. And uh, with, uh, with a new host coming in, it's time to say goodbye to an old host. I'll be leaving Heavy Cardboard in about uh, two or three episodes. It's been a fabulous 21 months. Heavy Cardboard is something that I've never imagined it would be when we started this. I, it, it, the community that uh, Heavy Cardboard has built here, it's a great community of heavy gamers. I think Heavy Cardboard's a leader in promoting the coverage and exposure of heavy games, too. And I really think that that proves how underserved this particular segment of the gaming community has been. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away from Heavy Cardboard because, well, uh, work is picking up for me. I work at a software startup, and this is a pretty critical year, and that's going to cut into my gaming hours. In fact, it cut into recording today. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> As we, as I've talked with uh, Edward over the, the past few weeks, my gaming tastes have been cycling, and uh, now I want to play uh, more specifically 18xx games. Um, I'm not going to stop playing Euros. I love playing Euros. Don't get me wrong there. And also, being part of a show like this means you adhere to what is, let's face it, a little bit of a tyrannical gaming schedule. You have to play the games that are coming up in the review cycle. Having less hours available means... I really can't invest the time that um, Edward and myself and now Amanda would demand of me to be faithful to Heavy Cardboard. It's best for Heavy Cardboard if I step aside. So I've had a blast doing the show. I think my friendship with Edward and Amanda have, uh, have grown over the last 21 months or so. I can't imagine, Edward, a better partner than you, man. Um, I also can't imagine a better advocate for heavy gaming in our community. I do call you my Don Quixote as you're always tilting against the windmills, and I, I give you grief for it, and I love you for it too, man. <laughs> Obviously, the show's going to change, right? Not in all ways. This, this is still going to be a quality show um, that's going to serve this community very well. Some will like the show better without me. Maybe some will not, but that's natural. I know this, though. Heavy Cardboard is going to continue to be a strong voice in the heavy gaming community. So keep listening, keep participating, keep playing heavy board games. I'll always be a friend of Heavy Cardboard. Maybe you'll have me on as a guest from time to time. Amanda's going to rock it. Ludus Ponderosum. So, yeah, so we've known about this for a number of weeks. Uh, we've just been trying to figure out how to break it to y'all. So here we are. Um so to be honest with you, the reason Amanda is coming on is we genuinely think she can handle her own. Like I said when I introduced her, yes, she is my wife, but she is not coming on to this show as my wife. She is coming on as my co-host, first and foremost. So like Tony said, the show is going to change uh, in some ways, and mostly it is not. We are going to have guest hosts on... From time to time, we have a number of them lined up over the course of the next few months. 
people that can speak well uh, and and give in-depth thoughts and opinions on the games that we're going to be featuring. So, yeah, that's it. But otherwise, uh, it's going to be a few episodes till Tony goes anywhere. Well, a few, including this one. The plan right now is this and two more episodes to force Tony to stick on with us. So here we <laughs> are. going to be some awesome episodes, too. I'm really looking forward to the three of us like doing this for, for, three, week, for three episodes. It's going to be awesome. I think so. And it should make for a smooth transition. Uh, you know, I, the way I see it is Brian Johnson was able to replace Bon Scott of ACDC. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Those are fighting words, my friend. Um, um, uh, Brian Johnson is a hack. Okay, well, maybe that's a bad example. All right. Ronnie but, James Dio replaced Ozzy Osbourne quite well. There you go. They, they so were completely different, and they were both awesome. Yeah, and, and that's something we want to point out here is Amanda is coming on the show to be Amanda. She is not coming on to replace Tony. It just nobody can replace you, dude. Well, there's no reason to replace me. <laughs> All of us are imminently replaceable. But, uh, no, seriously, though, we did uh, – Amanda did do an episode zero and uh, – Which is a test episode. Yeah, she kicked butt. So speaking of transitions, uh, Peyton Manning, dude, he's going to be transitioning, at least he better be, onto the retirement, onto the scrap heap because we won the Super Bowl, babes. Amanda, what are you, a Cowboys fan or something? What's that look on your face? <laughs> well, where I grew up, it's halfway between Dallas and Denver. So you're either a Cowboys fan or you're a Broncos fan. And I fell more in the Cowboys fan area, but my mother had a gigantic crush on John Elway. So I was probably about 80% Cowboys, 20% Broncos. But li okay. living in Denver definitely makes that a little bit higher, but I will always be a Cowboys girl at heart. So I'm happy that that they won the Super Bowl, but I'm also bummed out that Tony Romo cannot keep a collarbone intact. <laughs> no doubt, right? Edward and I have been on Weight Watchers for a month now. And no, three weeks. Well, this starts our fourth week. <laughs> yes, correct. We, I am seven pounds down total. I'm very proud of myself. Yeah. Way to go. Thank you. But I'm even more proud of Edward because he has stuck through all of this with me. He has cooked delicious meals for us. And we've been having gigantic salads every night. And we're just, we're, we're both already, even only after three weeks, we're already much more conscious about what we're actually putting into our bodies instead of just shoving McDonald's in our face. We're actually thinking about... Yeah what we eat and thinking about it in a different way. And so I think this is that nothing but good could come from this. So, I mean, this morning for breakfast, I made pancakes, we had eggs and bacon, and this was all on Weight Watchers. And, and it was, for dinner, it was all for dinner, we, we had a steak and a loaded baked potato. So it's not like we don't eat or we eat like birds or no, man, you just, you just learn to eat the right things. Game day, we're snacking on veggies and nuts and fruit instead of candy and licorice and all this other crap. Cookies so, hey. and cake and danishes. <laughs> I've missed the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, is I still have a bit of a sweet tooth, but it's just all in moderation and it's all the right 
stop just be smart about how much chocolate i'm eating at the end of the night that type stuff so so far so good so heavy con it's completely booked up and paid for we have 47 peeps including us three and tony's wife robin we're excited and somewhat shocked i guess that yours and Jeroen from splatter are making the trip from the netherlands to come to you know our little convention yeah, so it's badass i'm so excited Couple that with lots of listeners, heavy gaming friends, and some other designers and podcast friends, and should make for a pretty memorable second year of the convention. So if you're listening and you're interested in attending Memorial Day weekend for next year, shoot us an email and we can add you to the contact list. We still have a small number of t-shirts left. Now, I'm not going to say that this specific design will never be reprinted, but it's going to be... Not reprinted for the rest of this year for sure. Uh, possibly ever. So if you want one of our quote-unquote since 18xx t-shirts, now's the time to get them. Uh, order one, support the show. You can get them on the website, heavycardboard.com forward slash loot. And last but not least, we are going to have a new design in time for HeavyCon. So that's what's going to be replacing this one. But these are pretty sweet, so get them while they last. So it's uh, it's February. See, You're right. This is our, our last episode in February. And uh, February of last year. Wait, isn't there a song like that? February <laughs> of last year. That was bad. Um, <laughs> February of last year, we re- we reviewed Zanguo. We reviewed Agricola. And we announced the Heavy Cardboard Golden Elephant Award winner of 2014, Arkwright. Our, our own SDJ, right? Our Schwerespieler Bejaras. Heavy game of the year, baby. Woo-hoo. I thought that was a pretty pretty killer February. Wow. It was. And to think one year later, here we are having the Golden Elephant Award on Arkwright. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy to think about. But it's about. also, we got to be thinking about uh, the 2015 winner now. Yeah. I think our listeners can expect a pod blast uh, for the... Uh, the Heavy Cardboard Golden Elephant Award between, say, now and mid-March. So I think they can expect a contest too, right? Well, they can at least expect the results of a contest. So we had quite a few entries for the A Game of Gnomes Pay It Forward giveaway. I have to say that there were a good many of them that I thought made compelling arguments as to why they should get the game. Everything from... Funny ones like, you know, the weird guy as he's known at his uh, school's faculty game day to the one who didn't pre-order a copy and now is in the doghouse with his wife. Uh, And there are some that pulled at the old heartstrings. In the end, though, I went with one about a guy raising his son and growing into the hobby with him. So, Jeff Carter, congrats. You and Henry are our winners. Shoot me an email over at contest at heavycardboard.com and we'll get it out to you. Thanks again to Fragger Games and to Fun Again Games for really good, great, dare I say, customer service and helping make the pay it forward possible. To those that didn't win, I'm pulling for y'all next giveaway. Well, uh, let's see. We've, We've all made some game acquisitions, no doubt, in the weeks since our last episode. Has there ever been a week that we haven't? No. Uh, that would be a really bad week or two. It would. That's got to be so surreal for listeners. 
Like, these guys just never stop. <laughs> it's also surreal well, for I'm... the new co-host. <laughs> well, I'm a renter of games sometimes, so... I acquired two games and two game accessories. The two, the two games I acquired, last episode I ordered them. They finally came across the doorstep. 18 mechs in 1889. Nice. I, uh, you know, I love to do P&P work, but, like, I really wanted to support uh, Scott over at uh, All Aboard Games and order 1889. Plus, I, uh, I really don't like Carthaginian's style on trains and certificates, even though his map is gorgeous. Ah, okay, so you like bits and pieces of his graphical yeah. interpretations. Okay. Yeah, but more importantly, I, I like what Scott's doing for us all, you know, so I want him to have the money. Um, the two gaming accessories I got, we were having a conversation with uh, Clay from um, Capstone, right? Right. And, and he talked about Meeple Realty, and I started checking it out. I'm like, oh, look at this Trajan insert. That looks cool. And that's, that's Robin's favorite thing, you know, Trajan. So I got that for her, and, um, dude, it, it was amazing. It fits perfectly in the box. The tolerances were so tight. That thing went together like a... Like a like a German tank, like <laughs> finely engineered. It was amazing, and like you can hand each player the little box full of their for their own colored stuff and everything. So it's really really cool. And we started looking at the site some more, and uh, uh, we I saw one for Caverna, Ed's favorite game, Amanda. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know my Caverna box doesn't close, right? It's like it sits like three inches higher than it should. Nobody's Caverna box closes. <laughs> well, mine does now. <laughs> Robin said, get the Caverna one. And it came just the other day, and we put it together, and damn it, the box closes. Yay! It's amazing. So uh, thanks, Meeple Realty. That's some really cool stuff. I have never been an insert guy. I have, I have, Me either. I have said that you know, there's no reason for a game to come with an insert. All I need are baggies. But the way you talk this thing up, dude, I'm I'm willing to at least take a look at it, and maybe I'll be a con- convert. We'll see. Well, um, I don't want to give too much away, but Castles of Burgundy insert has dice towers. I was so excited about that. That looks so cool. It did look pretty cool. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. And in individual dice towers? Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Here's your Here's your stuff. It's also a dice tower. Um, so what has been acquired in the Euler household? Yeah, so I guess I should clarify this. I acquire. Yes. Ama- Amanda plays. <laughs> exactly. Um, you do indeed acquire. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so she has input, but I would say 95% of anything that comes into our house is from me. So just for consistency's sake, I acquired we didn't acquire. She plays it. It's yes. me. <laughs> so I only acquired three things. Or 109, depending on your point of view. Yeah, right on. So, okay, the first thing. So we had the board game auction, the live auction, which was a complete bust and whatever. I don't want to go into that. But I did get two things that uh, I was interested in. The first is Empire Builder. It's a crayon rails game. We don't own any. And I feel like we need to at least experience one. So I got it for like 15 bucks and I'm like, okay, cool. Good deal. Hey, I want to play that. Good. Cause you're going one. to, I've never played a crayon rails game. That'd be it's awesome. Sweet. Yeah. I'm excited to try it. The second one I got was Custer's last stand. Now I know you're a big, big Custer guy. 
dude, I know everything about George Custer. I want to see that game. Yeah, so I, I got that, and that was like 20 bucks, And I was like, yeah, I, I, it's from 1976, so it's a year older than I am. Or a, d- a year younger than I am, I should say. That's the uh, 1976 would be the 100-year anniversary of the battle. Oh, nice. All right. See, All right. and I would leave it to you to know that. All right. So the other thing or the other 106 things, <laughs> I, I don't know how you want to think of this, but I got a, a game called Age of Steam. Folks, it, it's obscure, I understand, but folks, yeah. folks may have heard of this. But I got second edition Warfrog, even though Chad just gifted me a copy of the second edition Warfrog edition. But the reason I got this is, oh yeah, it came with 59 expansions, which actually is 105 different individual maps for Age of Steam. Which is cool. That's awesome. But that kind of rolls into the whole hunting anticipating thing. I'm a little pissed off at Paul Chad. (laughs) Because he got me on this Age of Steam kick, and now that I got a huge collection, I'm close enough now that completionism kind of sets in. Damn you. And the stuff I don't have ain't going to be easy to get. Here we go. But the justification I have for this is I have decided that I'm going to hunt Age of Steam maps, and I'm in agreement with Amanda to get this, because it wasn't cheap. Let's say it was south of $1,000, north of 750 To be able to do that, I'm selling off my HeroScape collection. Yay. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to even think that you have a HeroScape collection. Oh, hush. <laughs> well, the reason why that I was agreeable to selling the HeroScape collection is because we've played HeroScape once, and we've had, like, all of it since we first started playing heavier board games because we saw that stuff. We thought it was so awesome. We bought as much as we could. That's all that we got for Christmas one year just about was HeroScape stuff. And again, we've only played it once, but Age of Steam will get played constantly. So there's a good um, good trade-off, very, very good trade-off in my opinion. So that's why I was willing to let all that stuff go. We have half a closet full that we'll need to be inventorying and selling. So that'll take some time. Yep. <laughs> so other than that, uh, there I, I've added a couple games to the Anticipation Geek list. So if you're interest, interested, go check those out. Like I said earlier, I'm the one who acquires stuff. Amanda's the one that plays it. So Amanda, what are you looking forward to on the playing side? Obviously, more Age of Steam, since we have almost every map in existence, especially the Disco Inferno map. Uh, That was played on Saturday, but I had a really bad headache, so I was camped out of my office, so I didn't get to play it. But I really, I really want to play this game with Tony because he will lose because one of the rules is (laughs) when it's not your turn, you cannot hum or sing or anything. And Tony is constantly singing or playing air guitar, or my personal favorite, the air, air harmonica. harmonica. He is doing one of those things almost constantly, so I I cannot wait to play this map with him because he'll just explode. It's going to be great. Other than that, just more of our challenge games. It's Edward and I both picked five games, and it's best out of three. 
but we've only played one so far, so we really need to get rolling on that and play more of our games. Uh, we were gonna we were gonna try to play a two player game of uh, through the ages last night, but we got tied up watching Jessica Jones, and that just kind of fell through. But anyway, so yeah, that's what we need to we need to get doing. So Tony, what have you been looking for? Well, I have uh, I guess pre-acquired my, my anticipation list or things that aren't here yet. <laughs> that sounds yeah. familiar. You know, in our last episode, I asked any listeners if they had a copy of SNCF, the Netherlands, that they would be willing to part with. And uh, Martin up in Canada said, heck yeah. So uh, thank you, Martin. I'm looking forward for the Canadian post office to hand that over to the United States post office to hand that over to have your card. Yes, and thank you. Even though you're getting it, um, we get to play it. So thanks. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, cool map, it sounds like. Uh, I did finally P500 1846 after uh, you scolded somebody, Edward, and I was like, oh, crap, I got to do that. So thank you for the reminder. Hey, I, <laughs> anything that helps support that publishing of 1846, because, man, I yeah. feel like this is a a watershed moment for the 18xx part of the of the hobby i really think this could be a very big thing and this is the perfect one to start with as well to be published by a big name publisher instead of like a print and play type thing well uh, i had some extra paypal money and uh... when do you not have extra paypal money <laughs> well when you rent games you end up with paypal right <laughs> There's been talk about some Indonesia group order, but uh, I, I said I'm not missing out on this. So uh, I ordered pre-ordered Indonesia from Splata. I can finally have a copy of my favorite game on the planet. Yay! What? You already own and, Splendor, uh, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Two, I have the Splendor Deluxe Collector's Edition. Okay, all right. Wooden box, all that. And the last thing was uh, I did back Medici on Kickstarter because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great little auction filler and... Um, I have that first edition, and it's just, you know, god-awful, as are almost all of the editions in English. And uh, and this edition, man, look looks freaking gorgeous. It's got a bunch of colorblind aids in it, too, with symbols and stuff. And, and they're using cards, not, not uh, chits in a bag. So uh, really looking forward to uh, fall when that arrives. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to pick that up, because I remember you yeah. uh, doing a trailer on it, you know, however many months ago yeah. and talking about the artwork and everything. And I, w I saw that on Kickstarter and not really, uh, I'm indifferent on it, but I thought of you and I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it. So it's good to hear that you are picking up a copy of it. I take it. I, I shouldn't give you my first edition then. I mean, I won't say no. Okay. <laughs> when, when the new one comes in, the old one is yours. Okay, so. cool. Thank you. So what have you been playing, Tony? Well, we've all been playing Trois lately. Yeah, we have. Clearly. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, in fact, the three of us and Paul Chad played Vital Lacerda's Portugal Age of Steam map. That was a blast. That 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 was kind of cool since we did just interview him a couple of days yes. ago. Next episode, guys. Uh, I played Cold War CIA versus KGB with uh, young Mr. Matt Grippen. And uh, it's a re it's a really weird two player game of uh, randomness, deduction, and bluffing. But when Matt and I play this man, 
it's a full-on mind screw. I mean, we are just we, – we've known each other for so long that we got to the point in this game where – uh, we're we're bluffing on the bluff that we're bluffing to bluff with, and it's just like you don't know what the hell is going on. And we had a 15-point victory game uh, out of 100. It was 100 to 85, and um, just a blast. I, I Totally two players. If there's somebody that you know very well and you really like you know, screwing each other, each other like that, get that game and play it. Otherwise, forget it completely because it won't work for you. Seven Wonders Duel, Robin's asking for that all the time. And kicking your butt, I I imagine. Oh, dude, I, I hurt her bad last game. Because, <laughs> you know what, that game could be tough, man. If it, Depending on how you draft, man, it could be, it could be a bad thing. Uh, Pasha, I also got that for Robin. It's a dice-rolling Yahtzee game um, with some card play that makes it more interesting. She loves dice games. I've uh, been working on a new SNCF map. This one kind of a, an 18xx homage. It's got a 2D stock market. And uh, company values can not only rise but fall. So that's been sort of interesting. Yeah, I saw you guys playing that and I, I, while I was uh, cooking at game day. So I, I was bummed that I missed out on that. But I'm looking forward to giving that a go. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, you missed out also because you were you were sick um, the previous weekend. But Amanda and I played 1880 with Chad and Tony and uh, Kyle. Yes, and it was great. Wasn't yes, it? it was. I loved it. It was so much fun. I, you know, I, I was saying, hey, this isn't really a, a game for a noob. And Kyle was like, I'll play. How, how do you think Kyle did? I think he, he did, did good. really good. He held his own for it, it. It shocked me that he'd never played an XX game before. But he did, yeah, yeah, he did great. He really did good. He grokked it, mm-hmm. and he rocked it. He now he finished fifth, but that was, but he was, yeah, in the game, competitive yeah. and attentive the whole yeah, time. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice to see that from a first time player. It was great. Cable car continues to hit the table just as a end of the game day uh, filler. And uh, Trajan, you know, the inserts came, and the wife was like, "All right, we're playing. It's out. Let's do it." So. I uh, I only lost by two points. That's the best I've ever done. That, that's nice. essentially a win against Robin. What's been uh, getting played in your house? Who's shooting first over there? Well, I've been playing just about everything that you mentioned. Um, the Portugal map was was great. Um, the first time I played Age of Steam, I played it with a map that was not very well suited for the number of players that I was playing with. So I really didn't enjoy it at all. But I've played it a little bit more, and now I've fallen in love with it. Damn it. So, Which I encourage, considering we just got 105 maps. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, we played the, the Portugal map yesterday, and that was a blast. We, um, hmm. When you, hmm. Hold on. When you say a blast, it was enjoyable. Was not fun. For Really? Oh, boy. For some of us at the table... It was a blast. <laughs> so Dude, I, I thought I was third, and I finished fourth, and I could not have had more fun. Well, for me, I was a whiny little yes. and <laughs> I will own that. I'm losing, I'm losing. Well, I'm I, okay. losing, let me pout. Oh, wait, I'm second. I, <laughs> I had three or four more loans, uh, shares issued than you guys did, and I was getting really frustrated because I'm still learning the system. And I'm learning how you need to look at what 
uh, production is going to be coming late game. And I, it just, that was a level that I was not prepared to get to. And I paid the price for it. And I was frustrated beyond belief. And yet, somehow, someway, my whiny little butt still ended up second. So I apologize that I was a terrible loser in that game and lesson learned. So Just that's don't let it happen again, sir. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, again, uh, like Tony mentioned, we have been playing a super secret map designed by Tony of SNCF. It's really cool. I'm looking forward to playing more of that as well. Then on Saturday night, the last game of game day, we played Jiraku, which is, it was an Essen release last year. And it was, uh, I don't know if there's going to be an English, uh, an American distributor, but it's a, it's a great game. It's, it's a very fun and different take on a trick taking game. And the, I mean, it's got bits that look like crabs. So, I mean, what else could you want? And the art's gorgeous. Yeah. It's trick taking meets. Area, area majorities, majority? area, area majorities, and and the crabs that you referenced—they're um, actually are... samurai helmets, but they look just like crabs, dude. <laughs> I don't care; they're crabs. Yeah, they do. They they really do. And I got to be honest, um, I got that game because it's so pretty. Yeah. Just it, it's beautiful artwork, but come to find out, pretty sweet little yeah, area really majority good, game yeah. as well. And but also been playing the 1880 China, as Tony mentioned. And I really liked the National Railroads portion of that game. That's the first one that I've played that... Uh, but does Arden have National Railroads? Oh, you mean those foreign investors? Yeah, that's it, that's it. The foreign investors, oh, yeah. yeah. That was really that was really cool that you could kind of use up that money to build up your tracks and stuff and then join it with your main company. I thought that was... Just a little printing press? Yeah. <laughs> Just printing money. It was... Yeah, that was... That was fun. But anyway, so yeah, that's all I've been doing so far. And you guys actually hammered all everything I've played. The only thing uh, that I've played that uh, wasn't with one of y'all uh, was the Age of Steam Disco Inferno game. Uh, or map of Age of Steam. And I gotta say, man, this is a uh, Ted Alspec map. That was really, really interesting and just, it completely changes the base game. So that was cool, the way the production worked. Uh, but the thing that interests me even more than Disco Inferno was the Soul Train side. We didn't play it, <laughs> but the other side of this map has, uh, the cubes aren't goods in this case, they are souls. The souls start in hell advance to earth and then at some point you score all the track that's down in hell and flip over that and it becomes heaven and then you have i think it's two turns to get as many souls from earth up to heaven and all the all the names of earth are you know in different languages and everything in and mythologies as well as there's shangri-la there was uh heaven there was all, all these different names for the cities for that, and I thought that was really cool, so I'm really excited to check out that map. But yeah, Disco Inferno, it's a lot of fun and uh, difficult. So we have two good-sized dining tables in our house that we use for game days, and they're perfectly functional. We even have a mouse pad-like cover on one of them to help with the playing surface a little bit. But even as functional as the tables are, they get a bit crowded with drinks and phones and the sprawling games that we enjoy playing. 
And this is yet another reason that the tables from BoardGameTables.com appeal to me as much as they do. The tables come with drink holders, which we've covered why that's so important to me. Drawers to keep phones, pads of paper, pens, keys, etc. out of the way to where the game table is all about the game. But also, the speed felt that covers the inset plane surface, I gotta say, as a former professional poker player, I appreciate the speed felt and how nice of a surface it is to play on. But the best reason that I can come up with why folks should buy a table from BoardGameTables.com, obviously, is so that you can leave Age of Steam permanently set up underneath the table topper for when spontaneous games of Age of Steam breaks out. Seriously, go check them out over at BoardGameTables.com and please tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. So, Tony, tell us a little bit about 1849. Ah, uh, thank you. Yes, I will. 1849 is set in my homeland, Sicily. Yay! <laughs> and it has a reputation for being a tough game. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but here's the reason I want to talk about 1849, guys. It's a short 18xx game. Four or five hours. Some groups will do it faster. It's inexpensive. $90. Can you believe that? It's available. You can get this thing in like two weeks. It's challenging. That's what we're going to talk about. And it's an 1830 clone with a little bit of chrome. So like if you know how to play 1830, you essentially know how to play 1849, except for the challenging part. So 1849 is a 1998 design by Federico Villani. It's a three to five player game. As I mentioned, four or five hours with experience, it'll go down. It is a financially tight game set in 1849. It features up to six railroad corporations, depending on player count. And the map is very small and tight and has a lot of expensive terrain on it. There's typical 18xx stuff, right? Stock rounds, operating rounds, blah, blah, blah. But here's what's different. Variable start conditions. The corporations that are started are in a random sequence determined at the beginning of every game. So the companies, and the companies have to be, opened in that sequence uh, this means you don't really get a choice but that just means more reason to worry about your seating order it also has narrow gauge and standard gauge track as some of the chrome as you can imagine narrow gauge track is cheaper to lay but it's less efficient for operations which is totally thematic i mean that's really how it was right and the game has a small bank it's only like just over seven grand, so you know it's not a lot of money in the game. Right, that would that would make for the shortness right, of the game. Right. That makes sense. There's some challenging gameplay here too. The game exerts financial pressure on the players and their corporations because the terrain we mentioned it's rugged, so it's pretty expensive. One of the cool things about the terrain is Mount Etna will blow. <laughs> Very cool. Um, the game doesn't feature full capitalization so you have to issue shares as you go that drops your stock price but you get some money just part of the challenge uh the permanent trains can get pretty expensive and the rusting can be painful uh, i didn't really feel like it was oppressive i mentioned the two gauges of track it's a it's a trade-off i can save money to lay this track money's always tight but if i lay the expensive track i can earn more money money's always tight so those are some good decisions to make there is a closed space on the stock market. 
you know, you start the game obviously without a train and you fall back. And then if you're issuing shares, you're falling back. And if you're withholding money, you're falling back. And so the companies go through this cycle where they hover near the closed space. So it's, it's a little bit edgy there, you know, and, um, uh, one of my favorite things there in, in our gameplay was I had one share of uh, John's company, and he was one space away from closed, and I sold my share and closed his company. Then he had to go downstairs and play a different oh, game. Oh, that's the time he play- <laughs> Okay. That's Cause awesome. Here's What's cool is this game doesn't end when someone goes bankrupt. The player can either, um, as Paul Chad says, go watch TV, or the game will give you a $500 loan with an incredible interest rate. Um, and you can get back in the game. So, so which basically John, you're out of the game, though, right? Yeah, John decided to go watch TV. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, nothing wrong with that. So I got my copy from uh, Scott at All Aboard Games. Check out his web store, guys. He's got a dozen or so 18xx titles with practically immediate shipment. This game costs $90 for an 18xx game. It's a super awesome buy. Great challenges. There are some um, variant rules like electric trains and things like that. If you want to soften the financial challenges, these things just let more money flow into the game. So you can kind of adjust your your challenge level. I like it as mean as possible, of course. Of course. I I really think this is a a great buy for an 18xx game. And uh, if you're looking for some financial challenges, I encourage you to check it out. I'm not going to rate it after only one play, but sure feels good to me. Nice. 90 that, bucks, huh? 90 I mean, bucks. That's right. 18.49. Nice. All right. Well, onto the list it goes. <laughs> all right. Hey. Amanda is going to talk to us all about Castles of Burgundy. Call it the right name, sir. It is D Bergen von Bergen, according to Paul Chat. <laughs> he will tell you that that is the proper way to say it. However, in English, it is Castles of Burgundy, which is designed by Stefan Feld and published mostly by Ravensburg and Nalia. The uh, player time, it's the players are two to four, and they can play anywhere between 45 minutes and two hours. But, you know, obviously the number of players does determine length, and if you get some of those lovely AP-prone people in a four-player game, it can definitely overstay its welcome. But, um... My favorite is at two or three. So the main mechanics of Castles of Burgundy are dice rolling, set collection, and tile placement. The goal of the game is victory points, and since this is a modern Feld, it's definitely a point salad. As an idea, normal score for two players would be 150 to 200 points, so if that's not a point salad to you, then I want to see what you think is a point salad. So um, anyway, the uh, the game is the goal is to fill up your Princedom, which is your personal player board, and you have five phases, each of those with five rounds in which to do so. To fill up that princedom, you utilize tiles from the main game board. Those are called settlement tiles. Those are obtained by dice rolls and selecting from the game board. The number that are placed on the board varies with different player counts. There are two groups of tiles in the game, goods tiles and the settlement tiles for your princedom. The goods tiles are obtained from shipping and can be sold for money during your turn. To begin, you roll your two dice, or, you know, if you have that lovely insert from Meeple Realty, you use your dice tower. Those can dictate what you do with that turn. The game board is laid out with seven different tile areas. They're numbered one through six, and then a bigger area in the middle that has tiles that you can purchase. Those cannot be obtained with dice. 
After rolling your dice, you decide what you want to do from the following things. You can either pick up a new tile from the game board that is the same area number as your die roll. You can place a tile that you obtained previously. Your personal board has three holding areas at the bottom. You can also sell goods tiles. Those have to, again, match the die roll. Or, if you really don't have anything else to do, you can sell your die for two workers. The workers make it where you can either you do a plus or a minus to your die roll. Each settlement tile does have a benefit. Some rule breakers, some allow you additional actions, etc. The game ends after all five rounds of the final fifth phase has completed and the most victory points wins. So let's talk about what's cool about the game. So this is a really cool entry level game. It's really great to use to introduce friends to the hobby. We've done that many times and it's always worked. They've always fallen in love with it. What I like about it is even if I'm playing with someone that has never played it before, I can take one of the harder boards while they use one of the normal boards. That way we both have a challenge and I don't feel like I'm falling asleep while playing. That's one of the really cool things is the, that array of boards that are available. It, it allows for scaling of the game as far as difficulty and... You know, and just being different. Oh, sure. the The replayability just on the boards alone is insane. World Championship boards. Yeah, the base game itself comes with six double sided player boards. All of them have the same layout on one side, but the other side has varying degrees of difficulty. We do have the World Championship boards. Tony was nice enough to print those out for us. We also have some boards that we ordered from Spielbox, the German magazine. So you, you have a ton of boards to choose from. There's also some expansions, six of them that I'm aware of. Three of them are new boards, and then three of them are new settlement tiles. I obviously am a big fan of this. Back when we did our top 50 of all time of right now, it was in my top 20. It was my number 19 game, and I'm pretty I'm positive this was the highest Feld that I had. I've said numerous times that I have fallen out of love or I, I enjoy point salads less and less yeah. but if there is going to be one that I'm going to choose to play it certainly is going to be this this is a perfect as we like to put it school night game we you had a hard day at work hey come home chill out play a relaxing game of, of COB uh, I, I'm a huge fan of it uh, I, I, what about you Tony do you like it as well yeah, I, you know, it's definitely point salad. I think um, Feld and Seinfeld and the big salad all kind of go together <laughs> here. Because, man, I mean, you need a calculator for this thing. But, uh, yeah, uh, I like what you said at the beginning, though, Amanda. I like it with two and maybe three. Mm -hmm. But unless it's the right four people and there's some uh, wine and fruit and cheese, nah. It just it overstays its welcome if you pay if yeah. you play it with more than three. I feel like. See, and and I'm the odd duck here that I don't mind it with four, but I do agree with you, Tony, in that it's got to be the right four. Yeah. So I apparently am in the minority here. I love the art in this game. I love that it has a watercolor feel to it. I love that all of the building. There's settlement tiles that are buildings that you can utilize for other things whenever you place them, but I like that they're all different. They all look different, and they're, you, you can definitely tell that that is a, you know, that's a farmhouse, and that's a, a keep or whatever. You can just, there's really cool differentiations between all the different buildings and then all the different 
animals and, and everything else. I just, I really like the heart. And like I, I said, don't. apparently, I, yeah, <laughs> like I said, I'm in the minority apparently, but I really um, like it. But I agree with you as far as the differentiation uh, between the buildings. And I really dig just the mechanic on how you can chain action upon action. Uh, you know, when you pick this building, which allows you to pick up another tile from the board, which then you can use one of your dice to take that tile that you just acquired for free and place it onto your fiefdom or princedom or, or princedom and then possibly close out an area and then score that area. I think, I think it's just, it's really clever integration of, of a dice allocation that you can mitigate with the uh with the workers and everything so is it random i guess i mean yes there's dice but you can mitigate them so it's just a win 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 all the way around as far as i'm concerned i dig the uh oodles of replayability with the random draw of the sediment tiles each round you'd never know what's going to come out of the bags or i guess in our case the the color-coded bags which that's nice or coffee cups or whatever it is you use I also appreciate the graphic design is really good. Uh, all the info on your player board, save for the rule-breaking yellow tiles, which are really easily laid out in the rule book. But everything is right there on your player board. And you can use that as easy reference. Oh, what does this building do? Let me look. Okay, so there definitely are a few things that are not cool about the game, unfortunately. The, Point the, salad. Well, other than that... The, uh, the settlement tiles themselves are kind of flimsy feeling. The cardboard that they utilized wasn't very thick. Um, when the Lust Gardens and the Cloisters, which are the fifth and sixth expansions ex- respectively, those tiles are much thicker. They use different cardboard and if they feel better in, in your hands. So I do wish that all the tiles were made of that thicker cardboard. Just, it's not, Wait. it's not like it, what? Did you say Lust Gardens? Yeah, that's what they're called. What? That's cool. <laughs> yeah, pleasure the gardens. Are, oh, what? No, aren't they lust or pleasure? Gardens? Yeah, yeah. It depends what language. Yeah. So I choose lust garden. Thank you. But anyway, I totally agree with you about the flimsy tiles. In yeah. fact, that's one of the points I had here on my notes that, and the fact that they don't match the expansions, which thankfully you don't have to draw them out of a bag or a cup as far as the the different types. So you're not going to be able to feel, oh, this one is this type or this is not. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of it's a low price point game, low MSRP. So I guess I I guess that's why they did it. But yeah, it's kind of a bummer. It just if they if they were going to utilize kind of flimsy cardboard, I would think that just go ahead and do that for all of them instead of making the expansion tiles feel so much nicer. But whatever. Um, there's there's not a ton of downtime in the game, but there definitely is some, and it's it's really hard to diff- it's really hard to plan ahead because the player before you can snatch up the tile that you've been spending time planning on getting and what you're going to do after you get it. You just, you really can't you really can't plan too too much and that does make it difficult whenever you've got an AP prone person trying to figure out what they want to do and they take five minutes. But in conclusion, this is one of my all time favorite games. And uh, when Edward came to me to pick five games for our best two out of three plays, this was an immediate addition. I love almost all of Feld's games, but this is definitely my favorite. 
My rating for this game would be a five. It's a must own for me and the game will never ever leave our collection. Let's cast the burgundy. So Edward, let's talk about Quebec. All right, designed by Philippe Bedouin and Pierre Poisson Marquis and published by Istari and Asmodee in 2011. Quebec plays two to five players and plays in about 75 to 90 minutes, give or take a bit. So in Quebec, players are constructing the historical buildings and places in the city of Quebec over the course of the last four centuries. On top of that, players will have to use their influence when constructing buildings to gain power in one of the five areas, religion, economy, politics, culture, or military. The game takes place over four turns, which each turn represents a century and lasts about five to seven rounds. Notice I'm not saying how long exactly it takes. At the beginning of the game, you have one architect and three cubes or, or workers. Each turn, you can choose one action out of the four possible actions, but of those four, the majority of the game is going to be spent either starting a new building or contributing to a building that's already under construction. There are 44 building tiles in total on the board, which are randomly placed, each one of the four colors corresponding to the four zones of the city, the aforementioned religion, economy, politics, and culture. One side depicts the completed building. The other side shows a quote-unquote construction site, showing which age it belongs to and three spots for workers. Depending on where the tile is placed, anywhere between one to three workers is going to be needed to contribute to the construction of the building. When you start a new building, you place the architect pawn over the age indicator, which is one or four, depending on which the current age is, and receive three workers to use in subsequent turns. Each building belongs to one of the four districts of the color, which dictates which additional actions other players may get from contributing to the building. Notice I said other players. If it's your architect, you don't get the additional action. Each building type has its own unique set of additional actions, which range from placing worker extra workers to getting just bonus victory points. The player who owns the building, whose architect pawn is at the site, dictates when the building is complete, but they'll gain more victory points with more building spaces completed. So it's a timing issue. When the building is declared complete by the player whose architect is making marking the site, the player places the workers into the building's corresponding zones. The age ends when either no buildings are available when a player tries to build one or the player has no workers in front of them. At the end of each age, there's a scoring phase. And this, to me, is the most interesting part of the game, where the players go from zone to zone and gain points. A player gets one victory point per cube in the zone, but the player with the most cubes in a zone cascades half of their cubes to the next zone. So say we're scoring the culture zone. Amanda has five workers, Tony has two, and I have seven. We all gain our respective points. That's fine. But I get to cascade three of them, which is half of seven rounded down. So three of my workers and use them in the next zone to score. Scoring continues and you can, you can chain cascading if you continue to win the scoring zones. With the final cascading going to that player's active worker pool. So if you have anything left over, you take half and you get to use them next turn. Do this four times and the game ends. There's a contiguous network scoring and scoring of each of the buildings at the end. And the player who has the most VP is declared the winner. 
So that's Quebec in a nutshell, or a big nutshell. Think coconut. So the cascading effect, like I mentioned, where the scoring and the winner of a zone cascades half of their workers down to the next zone. I think that is a really, really clever mechanic, and and that's my favorite part of the game. Uh, there's a variable turn length, which is dictated by the players because you, like I said earlier, it's usually five to seven turns, but it could be a little bit quicker, be a little bit uh, slower. Uh, I love any game in which the turns are dictated, the length of the turns are dictated by the players because that's something that you need to juggle. There's fighting for the majorities, you know, because who's going to cascade and then maybe if you're able to cascade from this zone to the next zone, you're able to score, you know, just oodles of points left and right. The network building at the end of the game makes for really good competition of the various buildings. So, I mean... There's only one place that my network can expand into, and if somebody takes that, I'm no longer going to have a contiguous, the biggest, you know, network of buildings, and that really hurts me come the end of the game. I think the graphic design's great, uh, language independent, which that's cool, but it's a non-factor I think for most of us. But at least for for us, you know, it's nice to see great historical artwork on the buildings once they're built. And it can be had for cheap. There's family rules. You can play with pink, which Chad's always a fan of. Because how many <laughs> games in which you can play with pink, right? Uh, and it is an area majority game. So it definitely is going to play better with more players, I think. But I think at three, four, or five, it's a good game. What do y'all think? I think I've, play, I've, I think I've played it at all player counts, and I would agree. There, it scales well. The uh, I would have to disagree with you about the uh, art. No, I didn't say art. I said graphic design. Okay, fine. The coloring. Oh, and... God, I haven't even gotten to that. Okay. That's atrocious. Yes. I agree. <laughs> yes. That's one word for it. Yeah. Tony? Well, um, I've played it once. Really? I remember That's nothing all? about it. Yeah. I remember nothing about it. It did not make me want to play it again. It did not make me want to own it. Um, I have no interest in this game. Okay. <laughs> That's a really terrible thing to say. No, no. That, there's nothing wrong with that. Because um, we're we're going to get in, more into that later. Uh, so the color choices that Amanda mentioned, um, they're rough, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. It, it comes off as extremely garish. And honestly... Just not appealing to look at uh, on the table. It's just, yeah, it's just not a fan of the art, uh, of the color choices. The artwork is great, but the color choices, I think, of the areas and everything, just not not a fan. The another bummer for me is the theme disappears while you're in the game. It becomes purely mechanical, which is kind of a bummer because it's obvious the designers put a lot of work into integrating the mechanics into the theme. And I get that, but it just doesn't it just doesn't matter while it's in the game. And I guess this kind of goes back to the whole we really don't care about theme in games. It can only enhance it. It's not going to detract. And here's a good example of that. Like it's just it's a non issue as far as I'm concerned. I agree that that the theme is kind of pasted on. I mean it could be you could use this for any city. It doesn't have to be Quebec. It could be New York City. It could be Baltimore. It could be, it could be anything because it's just it's just literally like pasted on there. 
So for a rating, I've played it I think four or five times. I'll give it a I'll give it a four. Um it's simple, it's a family level Euro, but it's one that when it hits the table for us, pretty much everybody enjoys it and it's it's sticking around and it, it can be had for twenty, twenty five bucks. Am I gonna suggest anybody run out and go get it? No, but if you're looking for a really cool mechanic with the cascading effect and something different and in an enjoyable, you know, hour, hour and a half. I don't see anything wrong with it. And that's Quebec. We had a bit of a menage a trois on Saturday. Why don't you, uh, why don't you speak on some trois? Yeah, we did, man. We played uh, three simultaneous games of trois this weekend. We had a, we had a house full of trois players, man. It was very fun. Twa is a 2010 publication by Pearl Games and Z-Man Games. This game either won or was nominated for 10 different international gaming awards in 2010 and 2011. And the designers, it's a trio of designers actually, Sebastien Dujardin, Xavier Georges, and Alain Aubin. The art in this game, I'm sure we'll talk about this, was Alexandra Rocha. And uh, it's a two to four player game. Takes here's my, here's what I'm saying: twenty five minutes a player. What do you guys think? I think it's less than that. Yeah, this this game can rock and roll pretty fast, guys. Availability and cost. Well, it's out of print, but. Pearl Games is doing a reprint uh, some point in time this year, supposedly followed by the Ladies of Trois, the expansion. So we'll be coming back around. So what's happening in Trois is several highlights to here. The players are in the role of a wealthy family in Trois, where work on the cathedral is accomplished and challenges to the city are met while commerce abounds. The length of the game is player count dependent. With uh, I thought this was kind of weird. Tell me what you guys think. You play you play four, five, or six rounds depending on if you have two, three, or four players. So fewer players is a shorter round of rounds. Fewer rounds in the game, which I thought was a little little odd, but it actually works in terms of um, using all of the elements of the game. Actually, better. yeah, a lot of games tend to have it to where the fewer player counts, the longer the game. Yeah, it's the opposite, yeah. complete opposite of this. One. And we actually played a two-player game of it, and we'll talk more about that here in a bit. Cool. And I was shocked at how fast that game went. Yeah, yeah. So in these four, five, or six rounds, the players are going to use their dice to. Place followers in the three main areas of town. There's a military, civic, and religious area. Each follower in these areas means that one die can be rolled on each of your turns by you. The civic area will earn you yellow dice, the religious white dice, and the military area will earn you red dice. And you must be skilled in the placement of your followers in these three buildings. You want to be able to get the quantity and color of dice that um, suits your plans, and you can be displaced by your opponents, so go carefully there. Players are also going to contribute to the construction of the Great Cathedral, and they're going to earn victory points and influence points. You're going to combat the events in the game. These events are, are cards that are laid out, and they affect 
life in Trois, basically. They, they have an effect on how the players are going to use their dice. They also have an effect on some of the buildings and cards in Trois as well. The main mechanic in Trois, however, are the three action cards that are in each of those three buildings, the military, the civic, and the religious building. This is where the meat of the game lies. Each building will reveal one card throughout the first three turns. So in turn one, there's only one card available in each of the three buildings. In turn two, there'll be two. In turn three, four, five, six, whatever, there will be the full complement of three cards per building. These cards are going to determine the specific actions and combination of actions that can be used by the players with their dice. For example, uh, my set of trois, I have uh, the promo, I've got the expansion, blah, blah, blah. So there'll be nine cards in the game out of a possible 57. That's a lot of variability. Huge amount. The actions allow the players to do a myriad of things from earn money, earn influence, earn victory points. And something I think is kind of cool is storing actions that can be used to accentuate subsequent actions that you take. The cards also create a... I think an enticing combination of plays. Often, but not always, the output of one card will affect the input on another for yet a different output on that card. And I think that's kind of cool. The dice, obviously, are the lifeblood of this game, though. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, each player will roll a certain set of dice, the color and count of which are set by their followers in those three buildings. And, well, these are placed into your district in the city after you roll them. And all the, all the players put their dice into the districts. And it helps here to not think of the dice as your dice. You just rolled them, and you acquired them. And these are uh, people that you are contributing to the workforce of Trois. But other people can always hire from this workforce. So it's always free to use your die your dice, but you can buy dice from other players during your turn with your money. Influence, mentioned that word a couple of times. Influence is a pretty important currency in the game because what you're going to do is use it to mitigate the luck the, that the dice bring into the game. So influence, if you find yourself shy of influence, you will find yourself um, a slave to the tyranny of randomness. So like what the, what the influence does is it allows you to re-roll dice. It allows you to flip dice to the other side. So that's really cool because a two could become a five, for example. And you can also hire new followers with your influence. And that's really important to be able to take care of the or be able to take advantage of the action spaces and to put followers in those buildings to get more dice. So basically, I you know, Trois is this medieval breakdance contest of die rolling and buying and using the dice on these crazy action cards, looking for combinations that earn you the victory points and the money, the influence, etc. And you just keep pounding at that, which really a fast-paced game until it ends and we count up the victory points. But there's one more source of victory points here, the secret bonus scoring cards. At the beginning of the game, each player gets one, and only that player knows what that particular bonus is going to be. But at the end of the game, all of the players will score for each player's bonus card. I had the advantage of knowing what one of the particular bonuses were and had the opportunity, therefore, to potentially work towards it more efficiently than the rest of my opponents at the table. My opponents are free, of course, to maybe glean from my actions what my bonus card might be. Um, and that, in a nutshell, is how Trois is played, victory points, 
are the determining factor, of course, in the game. Victory points earned during the game are kept face down in secret, so there's um, a little bit of something for the players to track there. So, again, trois, we're not trying to teach the game. just want to give some highlights for context for the ensuing discussion. Let's have that discussion. Let's talk about scalability in, in trois. We, we were just touching a little bit on it a minute ago. Um, I've my plays of Trois have stretched over the last couple of years. I, I have played, I don't know because I'm not as uh, anal as Amanda in tracking my games, uh, but I, I have played no less than six times, probably not not more than that either, though. And uh, all of my plays are at three and four, not two. I've played Trois six times over all player counts, two to four. I've only played the Ladies of Trois expansion once, though, and that was with you and Matt and someone. Couple years ago, I've played it five times. Once was so long ago I couldn't tell you, so we're not counting that. So let's call it four times. It's really five, though. Played it once at two, uh, twice at three, and twice at four, and never with the Ladies of Trois expansion. So I can't speak to that. We own it, but I have not tried that at all. Generally, when I play just on that subject, um, I play not with the little tower spaces the extra spaces just adds a little too much but i do like the purple die and i do like the extra card variability that the ladies of trois gives to the game now i think my three and four player games have been have been awesome and i i have no interest in two player i just feel like it's going to be zero sum tit for tat but you guys played it what what tell me about two player you're not going to like it nope it was i wouldn't say terrible but close to terrible yeah i did not enjoy it at all we'll we'll talk more about that here in a little bit and in fact i'm going to give two ratings for the game same here (laughs) and we didn't even talk about it but yeah uh let's talk about components and graphic design then amanda the components are good the cards are sturdy but they're not you know nice nice they're not ivory core or anything like that they're just they're just sturdy good um the money is just standard cardboard money and normal denominations. There's there's really nothing fancy going on with the actual How do you feel about the art? The game. I'm not a huge fan of Roach's art. I mean, it's okay. It's just not, not really my style. I mean, he's done this. He's done Brussels 1893. He definitely has a style that's just, I don't, I don't really care for it. But I do have to say that that old English font usage is absolutely horrible oh. on those cards. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to see to read some of the names of the activity and event cards. You have to get the player aid and try to figure out from the art what it might possibly say. Yeah, I, I, I had to get the Google Translation app out to read the damn cards. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand the reason for it, um, but I will agree with you guys that it's just function over form. I know it sticks with the theme. I get that. So before we go too far down this road, there's one thing I wanted to bring up regarding the cards. I don't like cards with black borders on them because they show wear really easily and the edges of them turn white very, very easily. Um, and they're standard, but non-linen, so you guys know how I feel about that. I just, black border cards just rub me the wrong way. The rest of the components, completely unremarkable. They're fine. It's standard Euro, the end. 
I will say I, I do like the artwork in the game. I, I think it feels suitably medieval. Oh, it absolutely feels oh, it, absolutely, but I, yeah. I, I don't like it, and apparently Amanda doesn't either. I am not a fan of that style of art. It, it's perfect for the game and for what it is, but I just I just don't care for it. Yep, same it just, here. It, I just don't like it. The end. I had no issues with the rule book. I thought it was uh, clear. It's well laid out. I mean, I, I mean, I've read it several times. Again, recently, of course, and uh, yeah, I got no problems with it. There were a couple uh, ambiguities, I thought, but I think it's fine. I, I, there's nothing that a quick reference, especially for an older game like this, uh, a quick reference is going to get you the answer on BGG. So no, no issues really with the rulebook. Speaking of BGG, there there's a player mat on there that was done by Derek EC. The the mat makes keeping track of all your workers and your cubes and your special character. And you have so many things that you need to keep track of. And my brain just will not allow me to have one gigantic pile of stuff. So yeah. I really like this mat because there are special areas for each thing that you need to keep track of. I would highly recommend downloading that. And I just, I really am not a fan of playing without it on our, when we were having our menage a trois on Saturday, we were. I was playing with Dana, and she looked over at me, and she said, "This isn't the copy with the mats in it. Where are the mats?" <laughs> yeah, and that's I, my copy. Yeah, and I was like, "Give me just a second. And so I printed them from my phone and ran to my office and grabbed them, and that made it so much easier to. Uh, it just makes it easier to play the game, just easier. The end. So, uh, Amanda, you're new to heavy cardboard. Yes. Officially, anyway. Yeah. You've always you've always been there. I've always been the one. The third chair playing the games <laughs> with you guys. So allow me to put you on the spot. Toi, is this game heavy, medium? What is this? Medium. I do Agreed. not feel this is a heavy game at all. Nah, nah, not at all. Not at all. Medium. Solid, good medium. I think, I think it's the quintessential middle-of-the-road Euro. So complexity. I, and I think this brings up something that uh, we all just kind of spaced out saying in uh, the graphic design part, a lot of the complexity in this game comes from the really shitty iconography. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I would agree. It's the, That's what makes it heavy. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think the, the iconography is an impediment to being able to play the game. If you want to talk about there are games complexity for complexity's sake, I feel like until you are very well versed in this game that the iconography forces you to reference the rule book so often that it almost becomes a bit of a chore to work your way through. And when you multiply that by 57 possible cards plus 20, 30 event cards, you're really looking at stuff all the time. Yeah. Every time you flip over a new card, you got to look it up because the iconography is just not... Um, apparent right and that adds some complexity it really does it's mm -hmm. it's it's rules complexity due to poor iconography if that makes sense yeah i don't really feel like doing the actions is complex not at all it's just figuring out what in the world that art means so i'm really 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 curious as to hear you guys's opinions on the planning aspect of twa I I think it's extremely tactical for the first half of the game 
uh, in a four-player game. Because a four-player game goes six rounds. And because of that, the first three rounds, you don't know what actions are going to be available because you don't expose the cards except for one, one-third of the cards each round. After those first three rounds, you can become a little bit more strategic in your planning based on you have all the information. The only information that changes is the dice. And even then, there are enough ways to mitigate the dice to where I feel like that's not a huge impediment to your planning. But that first half of the game, or three quarters of the game in the two-player game, is extremely tactical. What do you think, Amanda? The planning kind of revolves around your secret character. Because even though everyone is going to score that secret character, you're the only one that knows for sure that this exact one is going to score. And it's really, again, with the iconography, it's very important that you understand exactly what that secret character is. Because if if you look at it, because I looked at mine wrong this this morning during our two-player game, and it completely borked me. I, I didn't. I didn't look at it close enough and I assumed what I thought it meant and it meant something not at all like that. And that was, that, that was, uh, annoying. Yeah. 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 For me. Yeah. I I totally agree with you guys were saying it's a, it's a highly tactical game for me. This, the planning is just what color dice do I want to roll next turn as the, um, activity cards reveal themselves and, in order to do that, I'm always um, worrying about my money. I got my mind on my money, my money on my mind. Because I, I might need to buy your dice because it's not like I'm going to use my dice necessarily to get followers. I, you know, Being able to use the dice I want to use involves your dice. Um, and then consequently, I, I got my mind on my influence, my influence on my mind because I need to be able to mitigate what's going on there. So for me, that's, that's the very tactical stuff. I honestly... I, I don't pay a lot of attention to my bonus card. I uh, I definitely do pay attention to it, but I'm more concerned with uh, doing what I need to do rather than doing that because I'm going to get points for my card, your card, her card, his card. Let's talk about luck and random factors. Well, I mean, as far as I can tell, there are three random factors in this game. You have, obviously, the dice rolling every round. You have which misfortunes will find the players each round, and they are persistent. Then there are which religious, military, and civil activity cards will be present in the game. So And the end game. And the end game in a sense that you don't know what uh, secret characters everybody has. And in a two-player game, with two that mm-hmm. the other player has. Yeah. So I feel like there's quite a bit of randomness here, but at the same time, uh, because it's so tactical and there is quite a fair amount of mitigation in this, I really don't think the the, the randomness here uh, impacts the weight one way or the other. Yeah, I think a lot of the luck from the dice, the randomness part's cool, the luck in the dice um, is highly mitigatable. Yeah, I would agree. That can You can... Mitigate them by some of the activity cards. You can use influence points to either re-roll or even flip the die over completely. If you ha- if you rolled a one, you spend four influence points and suddenly it's a six. Right on. 
And then, you know, you obviously purchasing dice from other players or from the neutral player, which is basically the game, you know, itself. So I'm going to assume that none of us feel that the game length is an issue in its weight. No. Uh, I do. But in, oh, yeah? I, I do. If oh, anything, I feel like it has the inverse here. It plays so quickly that I would say that the game, play, the game length actually detracts from the weight of the game. I, I think that's, um, that's a pretty intriguing point, actually. I, re- I really do, because you, if, if, you, if you're playing poorly, I guess you don't really have time to catch up. That's a valid point. I had, I had not even thought about it that way. But yeah, I would actually agree with you on that. Getting it one round? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, each card is going to add to that. But yeah, mechanically, you get it quick. So uh, besides providing the opportunity for us, because we're all 12, to say menage a trois. Because of three um, simultaneous games. But that was cool, having three games at game day going at the same time oh, and yeah. they're all being trois. That was pretty cool. What other things are enjoyable about trois? I like that there are multiple paths to victory. There's not just one way that's for sure going to win the game for you. And uh, to piggyback on that, as you train up your workers, i.e. place cubes for delayed actions, strategies start to diverge. And because those paths diverge, I feel like players can focus on, uh, it provides different pathways through those delayed actions. I totally agree with that. I really like that um, the cards create combinations. That chaining effect kind of? Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, I can how I can store cubes on a card in order to enhance my my chaining um, as I go through the game. And I like, yeah, I like it because there's so many different cards that can come out, so it, it keeps the game fresh. If you you know if you're going to be playing it often or often ish, it's a bit rare that you're going to get the same card whenever you play the game. It is going to take a few times, you know, for you to maybe see the same card again which again goes back to the iconography and you having to take a little bit more time to figure out what exactly this card does but on the positive of that it also helps you uh keep that game fresh and help you come up with new chaining ways to chain because maybe this time we have this card that we had previously but we don't have this other card that i was using to chain it okay is there another combination that i can come up with to be able to do that and i think that 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 ever evolving game to game changing of the chaining and having to discover that is really clever yeah that variety man um, and the fact that like in a four player game you don't see the full variety in that chaining until the game's half over um, I really like that, I, and I, I feel like it really makes the strategy just kind of dependent on, it's emergent, you know, it's like dependent on what combinations, what cards present themselves. And who can what, figure out different ways to do it. How can I exploit these? Right. Um, what can my t- opponents do to mitigate my exploitation? Yeah. Oh, crap. Amanda's going to buy my white dice. <laughs> and that, I really enjoy the player interaction when taking dice and even having dice taken from me because... You can be like, oh, oh, awesome, yay, I rolled exactly what I needed. Oh, crap, Tony took that one that I really wanted. <laughs> you know, and you get to cuss each other, and that's always fun. But on top <laughs> of that, um, 
Just because he took that die you needed doesn't mean you can't buy another dice, provided you have the money, and then you can spend influence to either re-roll it or change it to the number that you need it to exactly. be. And yeah. boom, ways to mitigate it. But it's, on that... I, I mean, stealing stealing is kind of not even really the right word because they, it, it's being taken from you, but you're getting money for it. It's not like you're just getting nothing for it. You're getting some money. So that... that helps with the pain a little bit exactly uh, my next point here was there's this distribution of wealth okay yeah. if you have the dice that people need which you're not going to necessarily know the turn prior there's this almost great zimbabwe-esque uh distribution of wealth that okay you're taking my dice but I'm rolling deep now, and so I can use this money to either steal dice from you or from Tony or from Matt or from someone else. Or I save it for other actions to be able to place workers out on the cards to be able to store up victory points. So it's it, just because you got my dice doesn't mean you're, you're gimping me. It just means that, okay, this might be a really tactical thing that I have to... Take what's given to me or what's available to me and not stick with that original plan necessarily and try and force a round peg into a square hole. I like that in that distribution of wealth that the uh, the cost of the dice that you purchase are, are a little bit like exponential based on how many dice I'm going to use. So if I want to use three dice, every die I buy will cost six bucks, six deniers. So if I want to... Use three dice that I'm buying from the players. That's going to cost me 18 bucks. But if I have two dice and want to use a third, it's only going to cost me six. It's uh, that that's a very effective mechanic. Right. And if people stole quote unquote you know dice from you, they Bye. will have had to have paid you for it, and now you have that money to be able to steal from somebody else or the game right. or whatever. And this is one aspect of the Ladies of Trois that uh, I think a lot of people. Like, and that's the purple die. No one can buy that from you. Oh, it's, it's like wild, one stationary right? die? Yeah. Oh, okay, that's so like, cool. That's I, clever. Whatever I roll on my purple die, you can't buy it. And, um, yeah, it could be whatever color. Oh, nice. So it's a wild, unstealable die. Okay. Wild as far as the color goes, I mean. But, I mean, hey, you don't need Ladies of Trois to uh, Get dice. buy a purple die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. You got some orange ones laying around? Whip them out. I'm curious how you guys feel about the forced, I, I, I guess, forced teamwork of those nasty events. I kind of, it's kind of, a, I mean, since this isn't such a heavy game that you want to focus on what you want to do and that's it and you're going to spend five hours playing this game, it's a fast-moving game, so... I, you know, you're chucking dice and you're having fun and cussing each other out because somebody stole your die or whatever. I kind of like the semi-co-op feel of working on the events together because you're not necessarily fighting that, you know, you don't really get the feeling that you're fighting quote-unquote enemies, but that you're defeating the event cards and working together to achieve the common goal of trying to get those that card out of there that nobody likes like, the game that, Tony, you and I played with Dana, there were specifically cards that we were like, okay, I can do these two, you try to do that one, let's get that out of there. Yeah, we got dealt a murderer's row. Yeah, we did. And but and we had we had to work together just to, like, you know, survive the game. Right. 
But there were also, and I've been in a game recently on Saturday in which it was every man for himself, every woman for themselves. We just said to hell with those. And we ended up having a line of marauding cards that went from the game room into the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, to where we just we had a a an amazing amount of dice being wasted just fighting off the black dice because nobody wanted to be a team player and really use up all their dice on fighting those even though they give a reasonable amount of points for defeating those cards so i i yeah. dig how like you said in y'all's game it played one way in ours it couldn't have been more different I find it usually be in the middle because those are an incredibly valuable source of victory points, especially if you uh, get the most cubes on there or even get the only amount of cubes on there. And so I don't usually find where they get ignored. I don't usually find where there's cooperation. I, it's usually um, it's business decision, man. I'm going for some victory points. Um, so what do you think about battling the black dice? And uh, that first player has to take on the most, um, the, the, the highest value die and then could take on some more, could pass the responsibility down the line. The one, And I wonder if this is groupthink or group dependent because very rarely am I seeing anybody take it for the team and defeating more than the one die that they are required to beat. Now, there will be the occasional time when, oh, I don't have any workers, so I need two influence and I only have... I have zero influence, so I need to defeat two dice so that I can then get a worker to be able to place on a card. But outside of that rare instance, I do the bare minimum, and it seems most everybody else does. I'm curious, do you? what do you guys think on that? Well, I always try to make sure that if I'm coming to be the first, uh, maybe even the second player, that I definitely have one or two followers in the red building because you know red dice count double so um, that can that can really help yeah i agree with tony if i know that i'm going to be the first player i try to make sure that i have at least two or three people in that red building so that i can get as many red dice red dice as possible but i'm only i'm only going to fight one of those dice i'm not going to quote unquote waste dice on helping my helping the people that I'm playing with. I want you guys to have to spend dice too. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But that also kind of goes back to the whole planning. Um, There is some that you're, you know what turn order is going to be because it just goes clockwise around the table as Mm -hmm. far as who's going to be the first player. So you can anticipate a turn or two in advance. Okay. I'm going to need more red dice. So you're going to need to bump people out or, you know, force your guys in to that, uh, I forget what the name of the building, the barracks or whatever, um, so that you have more dice. So there is a little bit of future planning involved, but it's minimal at best, right? Mm-hmm. I would think so, yeah. I'm curious uh, what your opinions are on the hidden yet shared endgame scoring cards. I get it. But I'm not always keen on those and having to deduce, you know, who who has what. Um, there, there are games in which it is a critical thing. Like uh, this goes back to Argent, the Consortium, right? To where uh, who has what knowledge of what uh, people. 
But I just... The game's short enough to where it doesn't bug me um, as a side thing. But, eh, whatever. I could take it or leave it. Yeah, it's sometimes it's really not hard at all to figure out what someone's secret character is. Because if they're... If they are really focusing on event cards, then you know that that's the one that they have. Or, or they're pounding the cathedral. Exactly, or... exactly. You know which one that they're going for. So you might want to do that too because you know you're going to get points for it as well. Because everyone gets score, you know, gets those points. What do you think, T? Um, I'm ambivalent to it, really. Like you said, it's short enough and... Um... Like and like I said earlier, I I don't really make a point of, you know, trying to really go all out to maximize my points on my card. I'm just gonna, if uh, if the things I need to do to get points are, are better than you know sticking another guy in the yellow building, then I'm gonna do the other thing, you know, because I'm I'm gonna get points at the end of the game from whatever the hell you guys got. I usually don't even try to deduce what other people doing you know there there could be an option i've been pretty successful there could be an option just like what we uh suggested for shipyard that if you don't like it all right deal four out face up and those four are going to get scored at the end of the game hey good idea yeah i like that idea what things about twa maybe uh knock us the other direction i'll start and i know it's going to be unpopular and we kind of hit on it already but i strongly dislike the artwork it's subjective. I'm not a fan. I understand that it does fit with the game, but yeah, not my thing. And and that old English font was just... It, it, somebody's got to make a decision of function over form. But again, you're talking to three 18xx players where, you know, we want function over form. So that's my number one biggest complaint about the game, which I guess is a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, for me, one of the things is um, it's a bear to teach, and that goes into some of that font and iconography and stuff like that. It's really uh, – I had to make a teaching guide to get myself through it because uh, it sucks to teach it. I've never taught it, but I – it's funny. When we were going to play this uh, on Thursday, actually, that was kind of our, our barrage when we started playing it. A bunch of times between then and, and then and now, uh, in anticipation for the for the show, you were like, "Yeah, this is a bear to teach," and I was like, "Really? There's just not much that much to the game. Why is it so hard?" And then I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, okay, I get that." I agree about the art. I I wouldn't call it ugly. It's you know, it's fine. It's just I, Rocha's style. I just I'm not a fan of Roche, but. Again, with about that that old English font, I mean, in graphic design terms, this is going to make Tony K.R. very happy. If they had just adjusted the kerning on that font, it would not be as bad as it is. If they had, and kerning means the space between the letters. So if they had just made the kerning a little bit bigger, then the letters would have been spaced out more. They wouldn't have run together as bad. And you could actually read what it says instead of trying to figure it out by what the art looks like and looking at the player aid. And also, I mean, the theme is pretty dry. Did you guys think that way? I mean, I don't feel, I did not feel like I was building a cathedral. I didn't feel like I was hiring workers. I didn't feel like I was fighting enemies. 
I agree, but I can also see the opposite side of that to where the 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 actions that are actually on the card and what they do fit with the building that they're in. So I can see how people could do that, but we come at this game we come at games in general from a mechanical stand, you know, uh focus than a thematic focus. So we're not really looking for that, I guess. Um, but I can see it. But yeah, I agree. It's it's purely mechanics, man. Yeah, you know? that's all this is. I'm, I'm going to go a different way here. Um, I, you know, theme shmeme, as we say. But um, the the gameplay is so fast that uh, you can't really see it. But um, if you think about, about it, the game really, uh, there is a narrative to it based on what cards come out. And uh, it's particularly on the event cards, you know, like, uh, so um, I... And maybe I get that from my wargaming days because, you know, when you play an abstract wargame and uh, uh, one regiment charges another regiment and it should beat that regiment, but it falls back just because you rolled a three, there's got to be some um, narrative reason that that happened, right? Because, oh, the colonel caught a musket ball in the head or you don't know, right, what happened on the tabletop. And I, and I kind of can build a narrative in Trois, actually, based on the cards. Um, the last thing for me on the uh, on the not likes is, and, and I don't care about this because you know Ed, as you said, we're all uh, we all played various train games and economic games, but um, literally every action you do, you have to do short division. I, I can imagine that uh, annoys people, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't annoy us. That but, thought you know, never crossed my mind. But now that you mention it, I'm like, oh, you are having to, aren't you? Yeah, you do, and it can be annoying whenever you can get. You can, you know, buy dice from other areas or other players that almost gets it to where you can do something twice or three times, but you're like, what? Short. That, that's a little frustrating, too. <laughs> so I got a few more here. Um, it's point salady. I've covered how I like this less and less Whoa. as a mechanic. I highly I have, I have... do not agree with that Whoa. at all. Dude. Seriously? Hold on. 40 points is points out. Yeah, hold on. on, Hold on. You get points for your secret goals. You get points for build. Hold hold on. You get points for the cathedral. You get points for having workers on the activity cards. You you get points for killing the black cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stop beating the horse. I understand what you're saying. And you're right, man. You're absolutely right. You've convinced me. It is. But, like, but it's not like... You know, like Amanda talked about Castles of Burgundy, where, you, you know, you better get out four abacuses to keep track of your score. This isn't like that. It is, you're right, man. It's point salad, but it like, boom, it tops off. Now, nah, you've, ma- you've made a great yeah, point, Yeah, that's man. true. It's AP heaven, potentially. It kicks my butt. It's in a large part due to the tactical nature of the game. Like, like Amanda said earlier, you, okay, I have this plan for this turn. Damn it. I needed that dice and that uh, that die, and that's the last yellow die. Okay, so now what the hell am I going to do this turn? Let me try and refigure it out. So for a quick playing short game like this, there can be a reasonable amount of AP, at least for me. And again, I know I'm going to be in the minority, and I think Amanda's going to agree, but I simply do not like this game with two. Uh, I'm all for pressure. I mean, hello, Agricola. But the misfortunes stack up stupidly quickly if you let it. And again, that goes back to that whole co-op type thing if you want it to be. Um, 
And the game plays, dare I say, just too quickly for two players. Because it's only four rounds, you don't even see all the actions until the third round. So I am just completely in the minority. I understand that, but I do not like this game with two. So my summary for Trois would be that it's supposed to make you feel as if you're personally recreating four centuries of history in France by becoming the head of a prominent family. But the theme that the designers were going for just falls flat. While it doesn't make this an unenjoyable game, it does factor into my opinion of it. I would rarely suggest playing Trois, but if the mood to chuck some dice, I'd be, you know, willing to play it. I can say, however, but that if it was suggested to be played at only two players, I would rather watch paint dry. So, for my rating, I would say for three to four players, I'd give it a four. There's some cool mechanics going on here. Um, but for a two-player, I'd give it a one. I would. I never want to play this game at two players again. Wow. She's already lighting games on fire. <laughs> Seriously, <What> the... <laughs> dude. Holy. Um, I'll go. Uh, I appreciate mitigation. Of randomness in games and I appreciate when dice are done right and whether that's dice uh, allocation dice selection whatever you want to call it I think Twa does dice selection right I think it is a very enjoyable game at three and four players it's one that I could see myself recommending hey why don't we play Twa uh, every so often However, it's not going to be a game that I'm going to be clamoring to play uh, on, a, on a regular basis. This is a once every number of months type yeah. game for me. So for a rating, if you're going to uh, recommend or if we're going to play it three or four, I'll give it a four. I enjoy the game. I don't love the game, but I enjoy the game. For a two-player game... I know I'm in the minority, so therefore it's got to be a two. It's not. It's not the game. It's me. Well, it sounds like uh, our friend Travis will never be reviewing this. Game. <laughs> that would be correct. Well, uh, no, I don't know. There, I I have read a lot that this is people's favorite game of two players. Fine, knock yourself out. It's just not for me. Well, Twa for me is uh, it, it's weird because it's really something I should not like. It's got dice where the the high numbers matter more than the low numbers. It's super tactical. It's got a lack of long range planning. What the hell am I doing playing this game? It's not exceptionally thinky. It's dry. Okay, well that's not a big deal. It's not exciting. That's that's not a big deal either. Um, maybe. I, I don't know, but maybe it's one of those weird games that the sum is the the total is greater than the sum of its parts or something. Because I I do like this game. I like to play it. I enjoyed all of my sessions of it. Because luckily I have not played it two player. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really glad it came around for review. It plays super fast. Uh, I enjoy looking for the card combinations, thinking about the narrative a little bit, not not crazy. Uh, I like to eke out every possible move. I like to uh, have some money and uh, mess with people uh, and their plans and their tactics. I feel very strange reviewing Twa because it is something that I feel like I should give a three to, but I'm going to give it a four because I, I think it's an above average, medium weight game 
that's fun to play. I really, I do like the mechanics. I own this. I'm going to keep this. That's that's a four on our scale. Hey, that's toi. Hey, Amanda, tell everybody how to contact us. So on the web, find us at heavycardboard.com. Email us at heavy... At, crap. Email us at contact at heavycardboard.com. Twitter is at, at heavycardboard. Facebook, Heavy Cardboard. Instagram, at Heavy Cardboard. And our BGG Guild number is 2044. All right, so let's put a bow on this thing. Um, a lot of a lot of news, a lot of uh, information for people to digest this episode. So share it with us. Don't keep it in. Tell us what you think. I will say, uh, obviously, I'm going to be at HeavyCon. I'm, I'm going to be... Um, a third wheel there, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, my, my responsibilities on uh, helping heavy cardboard through heavy con are still on the table and God, I, I can't wait, man. Is May here? Yeah, it's going to be insane. It's going to be so, so good. So much fun. Oh my God. So what is anyway, seriously, we, we desperately want your feedback. Uh, and hopefully you guys continue to support the show. The show is going to change in small ways, but the heart of the show is not going to be any different. And any closing shots, guys? Uh, no, I'm really looking forward to some more Age of Steam. That's coming up in a couple of episodes. And um, wow, uh, Paul Chad has us on the regimen, the playing of Age of Steam regimen. And uh, that's been pretty awesome. What do we got next episode? We have... Uh, Vital Lacerda. Yep. We have the interview with him. We have the auction mechanic we are going to discuss in depth. And obviously some uh, trailer game reviews. And for Tony's final show, that will be our big Age of Steam extravaganza. Yay! It will be just wall-to-wall Age of Steam, and I'm super crazy excited about it. And we're going to get to play a lot of Age of Steam, which means yay! Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. Don't forget to bring a towel. So long and thanks for all the fish.